0: this is farms food future a podcast that's good for you good for the planet and good for farmers brought to you by the international fund for agricultural development i'm brian thompson we have the latest from ifads associate vice president Donald brown on how small scale farmers are dealing with the covid 19 crisis more than one year on and counting Also, we talk farmers' mental health under the pandemic. Coming up, David Rose from the University of Reading and Dr. Mahbub Hossein from Texas A&M University. And we'll be talking to a Brazilian doctor about her research into the link between pesticides and mental health in farmers in southern Brazil. Then we see how geographical information systems are helping make investments in the right place at the right time in Malawi. Our intrepid reporter, Kaila Carvalho, will be bringing us more reports. The first on the best husband competition. I thought I'd already won that. And the second on art and agriculture. Intriguing plus news on reimbursable technical assistance, a way to cut through the procedures and pay for IFAD's services directly. And then we have the fourth of our mini-series on Afro-descendant communities in Latin America, where we talk to Colombia's Dorina Hernandez. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. According to IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown, when we first started to respond to the COVID crisis a year ago, we thought we'd be on top of it much quicker. No one a year ago thought we'd be where we are now, a year on. With new waves of the pandemic sweeping through Africa, Asia and Latin America, and a third wave threatening Europe, Donald Brown told me more. The
1: situation is still extremely serious. One could maybe say more serious because of the time it's gone on. So in that context, Efad's response is even more important. And what we're now doing is extending our, our emergency response and recovery programs under the, uh, under the uh, COVID fund into 2022. We, we originally envisaged that we would um, be ending them during 2021, but it's clear that the impact of COVID, particularly on the rural poor, will go on not only for next year, but for many years to come. So we're extending our sort of a relief and recovery programmes into 2022. At the same time, we are repurposing more uh, of our project funding, our, our ongoing project funding to support COVID. So we will be up to over 200 million repurposed very shortly. Uh, and then lastly, we are continuing, given the length of time this has been going on, we, we did a number of studies which I've talked to you about to support governments in understanding their policy responses. Well, it's clear that uh, there are new studies needed to, um, to look at the situation given the length of time it's gone on. So for example, one uh, let me give an example of one second round sort of assessment of COVID-19 challenges that we funded in Bangladesh. Uh, Initially, we funded some work which helped uh, ensure that agricultural inputs were seen as a priority uh, commodity for movement despite uh, transport uh, movement restrictions. Well, the second study we've just funded has shown that domestic reserves of rice, wheat, potatoes, pulses, maize, are really starting to reach critical levels of, you know, the supplies of them due to the prolonged pandemic. So that the government now needs to look at how to uh, how to ensure continued national food supply of some of the key commodities.
0: Are governments, would you say, getting the message that rural communities in developing countries need support now more than ever?
1: Yeah, governments are getting the message messages. Both the governments in developing countries, uh, but also many of the main donor governments. Uh, Our our member states acknowledge the importance of EFAD and the importance of our response to COVID, not least in the recent replenishment, uh, which we had EFAD 12, which uh, culminated in February, where where a record number of core contributions were received uh, to support EFAD. But at the same time, it's very difficult choices for governments because many of uh, the developed country governments have significant challenges in their own countries to support uh, the health and other, um, and other effects of COVID. And many of the developing country governments uh, are finding it extremely difficult to just find uh, funding for the health costs. So so people understand the importance of it, but there are some hard choices to be made about the money available, which is why things like the uh, rural poor stimulus facility, the RPSF, EFADS COVID fund, become more and more important. We've we've had a strong response. We've raised $93 million for the facility, um, but clearly we could could happily use, you know, two, three, four, five hundred million dollars. because the uh, the, the dem- demand and the needs are, are so high out there.
0: Um, on, on the horizon now, we have the UN's Food Systems Summit coming up. Um, how does that fit in to all of this, would you see?
1: Well, it's interesting because the Food Systems Summit was planned before the COVID pandemic. Um, You know, even before the COVID pandemic, the food systems faced enormous challenges globally. Hunger had been starting to rise again for a number of years, having fallen, you know, for a period. Uh, In 2019, there were 690 million hungry people in the world. And it was clear that healthy diets uh, were not uh, accessible to many, many people in the world, uh, unaffordable for over 3 billion people. So there was clearly a real issue about our food systems before uh, COVID, but the alarming effects of the COVID pandemic on human health, on environment, has set us further off track uh, on our our goal to feed people with good nourishing balanced diets. So the Food Systems Summit has become even more important since the pandemic because it's been a real eye-opener um, the pandemic's been a real eye opener on the vulnerability of the food systems which are already there but has really put them into the spotlight not only in developing countries but in developed countries you know there is uh, there is uh, there is a real opportunity because in developed countries are also looking at sustainable food systems and what it means for them this is not just a, this is just not a developing country problem and and, and, and that one could say was one of the if there were any positive effects, positive effects of, of the COVID pandemic, that is, you know, it is acknowledged as a global problem.
0: Thanks to IFAD's Donald Brown, IFAD alongside Care USA will be leading on track four at the Food System Summit on advancing equitable livelihoods. More information on that via the IFAD website, ifad.org. Coming up, we're talking mental health and farming and some exciting new research. This is Farms Food Future. Farmers' mental health and resilience and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic are the focus of a major new research project led by the University of Reading along with the Universities of Exeter and Sheffield in the UK. The research team will work with farmers and organizations involved in supporting them to understand how the spread of the coronavirus has affected agricultural workers and their resilience to mental ill health. Dr David Rose is the Elizabeth Creek Associate Professor of Agricultural Innovation and Extension at the University of Reading. He'll be leading the project and I put it to him that even before Covid came along, many in the agricultural sector were already under pressure.
2: Yeah, under pressure everywhere, I think. But um, particularly in the UK with changes to agricultural policy after Brexit, farmers were facing huge financial uncertainty, which was contributing to already fragile mental health because of isolation and, and risk and loneliness and long working hours, all those things. So, yes, it was always challenging for farmers.
0: So how has COVID-19 augmented this situation?
2: In one way, it's obviously disrupted markets significantly. So a lot of farmers have struggled to sell their produce to their normal customers with hospitality closing, hotels, restaurants. Some farmers have found that they've now got no one to sell their products to and they've had to waste some of their products. Some of the farmers have struggled getting labour to come and work on the farm for obvious reasons. And that's just increase the long working hours and how hard they have to work and then lastly and probably the most important way that Covid has has really stressed mental health further is that farmers have lost their opportunity to have social interaction with friends in the pub or or fellow farmers at agricultural shows or lost the opportunity to go and see new management practices on other farms so that, that they've They've really struggled to access that social sort of business emotional support um, that they get from those, you know, quite informal interactions in, in social places that
0: have been closed down. So so, David, what do you think can be done to support farmers better? And what does your research, what does that set out to do as well?
2: Um, so I mean, firstly, it's it's research with with Exeter Sheffield led by the University of Reading. So we want to firstly explore the impact of COVID-19 on farmer mental health in the UK to try and understand what the extent of the problem is because the statistics seem to show that it has worsened. So there has been an increase in calls to pharma helplines, for example, citing mental health issues and COVID. So we want to see how widespread the problem is and, and just how much worse it has got but we really also want to put the focus on those charities and other organisations that are trying to support farmers through these difficult times, and not just COVID, that they've always tried to help farmers, but those charities that provide helplines that farmers can phone into or provide business support to them. Um, We we want to understand how they work, how they can be better supported, but also the challenges those organisations Are now facing with Covid and delivering that support because we know that many of them are suffering from funding shortfalls or staffing crises. So one of the outcomes of this piece of work is hopefully to show government how they can better support these organisations who are helping farmers through these challenging times.
0: What sort of commonalities could you see there being for how farmers in a developing country are also being affected by the pandemic?
2: I think there are many commonalities. So a colleague just sent me some research from India this morning, actually, looking at the mental health epidemic in farming there, and I I hadn't realised just how serious it was. So um, in some years, there's been over 16,000 farmer suicides in India. Um, I think the most recent statistic, it was still over 11,000, which accounted, I think, for 11% of all suicides in India. And he sent me some research looking at how COVID-19 had exacerbated already fragile mental health. And it, some of the same themes were raised. So um, there was some research that looked at farmers finding it difficult to get labour to come and work on their farm, which had you know, increased the stress on them. Um, there were disruptions to markets. There was bigger financial uncertainty. Farmers were, were struggling, obviously, with their own health as well. So I think many of the same business and emotional pressures that face farmers in the UK also face farmers in the developing world.
0: That was Dr David Rose, Elizabeth Creek Associate Professor of Agricultural Innovation and Extension at the University of Reading. Up next, we stay with the impacts of COVID-19, but this time on the mental health of farmers in developing countries. You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson. latest evidence suggests that a psychiatric epidemic is occurring with the COVID-19 pandemic. Multi-pronged interventions should be developed and adopted to address the existing psychosocial challenges facing farmers and promote better mental health amid the pandemic. Dr Mahbub Hossein completed his medical training in Bangladesh. He's now studying for his PhD in the USA, And he's worked extensively on mental health issues within the Global South. I asked him what are the existing factors affecting the mental health of rural communities in developing countries. So one
3: thing that I noted that uh, when we talk about rural communities and we try to understand the determinants of mental health, uh, we often start exploring like uh, individual level risk factors or like determinants of mental health. But one thing that is like often um, like under investigated is the psychosocial stressors that uh, emerge from systematic exclusion. So for example, most of the developing countries, uh, they often focus on development and like uh, providing services in urban areas. But in most cases, rural people don't have access to like social services and health services. So this is one challenge. And at the same time, like when they have limited economic opportunities or like uh, limited chances to improve their livelihood and their quality of life, these things like critically affect their uh, mental health and well-being. And when it comes to South Asia, where like in different South Asian countries, the rural population is nearly 40 to 70 percent although like they have a major proportion of the total population in this country, but the major amount of uh, government expenditure or public expenditure goes to like infrastructure development in urban areas or like providing services to those people who don't need that much or they might have the resources themselves that they can improve their lives. But when it comes to rural people, they have limited resources, limited opportunities and one thing that I want to highlight is it is quite systematic.
0: One thing I would like to ask is, with the onset of the pandemic COVID nineteen, what do you expect? Has has this exacerbated the situation in terms of pressure on mental health for 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 rural communities?
3: What COVID nineteen has already like shown us is uh, the existing disparities that have been in place but maybe we didn't talk much about them. But this pandemic just like revealed those existing gaps. And in many cases, it has already widened the gaps. For example, if we consider a hypothetical case of a person suffering from depression in uh, some South Asian village or rural area, so during this pandemic, this person is more likely to experience like uh, lack of economic opportunities or employment. For example, many farmer, farmers committed suicide during this pandemic. And farmer suicide is quite common in South Asia. But during this pandemic, the stressors became little different. For example, those farmers who didn't have their own lands, they used to work on lands of other people. But even those uh, farmers don't have their agricultural lands or like, they don't have like active agricultural operations. So for that reason, like temporary uh, employment opportunities have also declined during this pandemic. And if this like socioeconomic problems impact the mental health of the vulnerable individuals, they cannot even avail mental health services because in rural South Asia, mental services are not readily available. But for worst cases, they used to travel to urban areas. And guess what? During this pandemic, uh, many urban hospitals have been transformed to COVID hospitals, which means they're um, like providing emergency care or COVID-19 related care. So those areas, such as psychiatry or mental health, that are not perceived as medical emergencies, these services have like decreased declined during this pandemic so even if someone manages from the rural area to recognize that yes I'm suffering from a mental health problem and I need care but I know it very well that in my community or my area we don't have uh, mental health services so I have to go to the urban places even if that person manages to travel to that urban place the service is not available there. So
0: is there a a solution to this? Is, Is there a plan of action you would you would Council that we, we we start promoting.
3: So one thing that we could we can like possibly recommend is uh, looking into what is in place or like what are the minimal resources that we already have and how we can leverage on that. For example, most of the rural communities or developing countries, let's say, uh, they have wonderful community health services or primary care services in most cases. And this is why like immunization or vaccination in developed countries is going pretty slow. But when it comes to uh, LMICs like India or Bangladesh, like they are doing really well because they already have a community health plan or a strategy and they have good community partnerships. So their primary care and community health, I think this is one place where like we can look into. And if we have to recommend something, I think, it would be really fruitful if we could integrate mental health services and psychosocial, psychosocial support in existing community health services or primary care services.
0: That was Dr Mahbub Hussein from Texas A&M University. Up next, news from Brazil where we'll be talking about pesticides and how there is a suggestion that they're connected to the mental health of farmers. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Our reporter, Kayla Carvalho, has been talking to Dr. Nacy Muller Xavier Faria, who's been studying the association between pesticides and the mental health of small farmers in Brazil for more than 20 years. In a few of her studies in the south of Brazil, she was able to observe clear correlation between farmers who developed minor psychiatric disorders and those who suffered pesticide poisoning among other factors. Nice explains some of the science behind it.
4: We don't have a clear answer about all the mechanisms. There are some chemical groups, mainly insecticides. But within the different groups of insecticides, the group of organophosphates, which we have already established the possibility of having long-term effects. And this was the group that we identified in our research, those who worked on farms that reported the use of organophosphates, they had more mental health
5: issues. There
4: is a mechanism that is biochemical inside the body of people. But there are also other possibilities, and we are not sure if the impact of pesticide poisoning could not bring other repercussions. Nowadays, there is a new area of study, not so studied in Brazil yet, called epigenetics, and according to this new line of knowledge, some exposures throughout life, not exclusively exposure to pesticides, it can also be cigarettes, alcohol, drugs and even medicines can impact our genetic structure, not the DNA chain, but a more external structure, and this can even be transferred to the following generations. This change was well documented in rats and the study included some pesticides among them, again organophosphates, so we don't have all the information to be sure. But one of the suspicions is the possibility of pesticides having an epigenetic impact and because of this mechanism, people develop problems such as depression. That is a possibility. So, when we talk about pesticides affecting mental health, would depression be the most common scenario? It would be depression, it is what appears most, it is what we see most. I started to study this because I was a rural doctor, I was a family and community doctor before becoming an epidemiologist, and before becoming an occupational doctor. And then we noticed that there were a lot of people with psychological problems. Every time we started to think of a research project in some municipality, the local manager requested that we evaluated that as well. The managers demanded that because of the very low Large number of people with mental health issues. Of course, the rural area has other problems too. There is the migration of the youngest and most educated, which generates the phenomenon that we call empty nest syndrome. It is quite strong in the rural area, and we witnessed that in several interviews. There are problems related to economic issues. The farmer is hostage to the climate and often hostage to bank loans that have been made. When they have a hard time paying off the debt, that undoubtedly increases mental health problems a lot. And there are also other problems such as alcohol consumption and other issues that sometimes occur on farms that might contribute to that state. How can we reduce the risks that the indiscriminate use of pesticides offers
5: Brazilian farmers?
4: First of all, we need to recognize the risk, which is what we are talking about here and what we have been doing in here to alert the population. The risk exists, the risk has different degrees, obviously, the risk is greater for those who have the greatest contact with pesticides, there are also people who are more susceptible.
6: Now, when we
4: recognize the risk, then we will discuss, well, what are we going to do, what solutions we would look for. There are several of them. Nowadays, there are people who are discussing changes in the agricultural production model, which is very important and encouraging sustainable ways of production. There is also another discussion, which is to replace the most toxic products with less toxic ones. So there is a discussion in Brazil, what is the production model that we want to follow? What is the possibility of adjusting the agricultural production model? preferably without causing too much of an economic problem because we have to consider that with the current situation. There is also other ways to control this exposure, such as supervision of agricultural stores, the usage of agronomic prescription and the identification of those who left pesticides residue. We also need to insist that at least the waiting period is respected. Besides that, we should build, in an organized way, partnerships with various sectors. The health sector has to have partnerships with the agricultural production sector and with the education sector so that people start to take this problem seriously. So we have a lot of discussions, some suggestions, but nothing close to an instantaneous
6: solution.
0: That was Dr. Naisi Faria speaking to Farms Food Future. Coming up, Irshad Khan's report on geo-monitoring and evaluation. This is Farms Food Future and I'm Brian Thompson. In 2019, IFAD ran an innovation challenge for staff to propose new projects that would help deliver better results quicker. Nine of these projects were funded, including geo-monitoring and evaluation. The GEO m and project shows the power of leveraging geographical information systems and earth information systems such as satellite imagery. These tools enable IFAD to obtain faster, more accurate, more useful information to support projects from the design phase through the implementation phase to evaluating its impacts many years after the project has closed. Our reporter, Irshad Khan, spoke about the GEO M&E project with Arthur Mabiso, senior economist in the
7: Research and Impact Assessment Division. Now, in the case of what we're doing here in Malawi in Pride, an important aspect there is in terms of being able, before we actually implement, to assess where do we. Put the exact uh, location for the investments, but also I think in terms of assessing the potential implications before we actually implement. So, you know, there's a lot of work around checking whether you know the infrastructure, particularly where there are dams, for example, whether that would cause any uh, negative impacts if we were to make the investment, if we were to go forward with it, and so. In a way, it's a tool that's being used in particular with with the engineers to select the project uh, locations, specific project locations. So we do know the general location in terms of the general area, but then where exactly to put the the infrastructure, the implications both from a a CCAP uh, environmental safeguards and social safeguards perspective to get a sense of what does it mean when we make these investments. So I think that's that's one aspect. Then another aspect which is really important for us is being able to, to look at that place where the investment is happening before we make that investment, so in terms of a baseline. So understanding, okay, what is currently happening? What are the livelihoods of the people that are living in these areas like? And then as we move forward with implementation, being able to monitor the progress, particularly in terms of of agricultural production, in this case, where it's an irrigation investment. And then as we go to the end of the project, the idea is that, uh, you know, five, six years time from now, we will be able to assess the impact of those investments. And then even longer beyond the five, six year term, looking at the sustainability of those impacts, because we have the GPS coordinates and the shape files for those locations. So, As more and more data, particularly as we look at, you know, some of the remote sensing data sets and some of the satellite imagery data that are being generated, as more of these become available, we will be able to, to still look at the same areas of investments and doing some new types of evidence that I think we haven't been able to do before, which is to understand what those investments mean in the longer term, you know, when you're talking about even 20, 30 years from now. And I think that, to me, is opening up a new area which really will make a, a huge difference in, a, in terms of being able to, to continue to assess the kinds of you know, long-lasting impacts that the kinds of investments that are being made on the ground, uh, both from a, a social-economic perspective, but also from a, particularly from an environmental perspective. And as we anticipate that climate change will begin to have huge impacts the real point here being that there's so many aspects both in terms of the project itself throughout its project cycle but also beyond that being able to use gis to enable us to get really detailed information and evidence that helps us to take whatever measures are needed and also to help support the the communities that that we're really interested in supporting so i think that that's what i would say in terms of what we're trying to do here that was Arthur Mabisu talking to Ishad Khan.
0: For more information about the Innovation Challenge and all the funded projects, including G O M E, visit IFAD.org forward slash innovation challenge. And you can hear more IFAD podcasts at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. In just a moment, we're back with the Best Husband interview. This is Farms Food Future. What if there was a way to know if your significant other really is one of the best around? The Best Husband Contest in Burkina Faso, created by Farm Radio International, did exactly that. The contest was created to deliver information in local languages in a more fun and engaging way. The focus wasn't to judge and compare husbands. It was to make husbands more aware of their role in taking care of their family's health. Our reporter, Kayla Carvalho, talked to Caroline Montpetit, Farm Radio's Regional Program Manager for West Africa. She told us how the fun contest brought awareness to the people in Kawadougou, a community in Burkina Faso.
5: So in Kudugu, more specifically, one of the regions that we conducted this contest, we had about 30 candidates that, that registered to be a part of it. There was a couple of steps. One of the first steps was that a jury went and visited the families and see what was the reality within their household. They've discussed with some of the household members, their wives, and they administered a questionnaire, and then they selected finalists to be part of, of this public contest, like a, a public game that was done on the air. So the idea was really to evaluate their knowledge on the matter, promoting their participation. And, and through the contest, you know, it, they, they even had to create a song on how to on how to promote women in child health and how to um, bring other people in their community to, to do the same and, and be a part in, in prenatal and postnatal consultations. How did the program impact the families in Burkina Faso, more specifically in Kodoku? So through this, what we really wanted was to make sure that people have access to the right information to be able to make good decisions about the kind of health services that they want, um, you know, what were the danger signs that they had to look for. Um, But also we wanted to address issues of gender equality and see in which way um, men, uh, you know, could really be a part of this. This contest, I really feel like it was something that, that brought people together. And it really allowed people to be reflecting on how can I truly be supporting the women of my community? And according to some of the testimonies that we've gathered, people mentioned that, you know, couples were now more aware of the importance of communication within the household, of of being together to make decisions about the health of their family. Um, And women explained that they felt like they were you know, they used to be alone in taking care of this, but through this contest and through the, the various series that we broadcasted, um, they felt like they they now had a bit more support from their husband, um, that they were now involved in, um, in, in decision and in, in monitoring the health um, of, of um, their wives and, and children and even going to the health centers with them or providing financial means for transportation. So really concrete actions that really allowed women to feel like they had more support. Any story that stands out? One of the winners of the Kudugu contest, his name was Ahuna Kabore, and he, uh, he is a farmer, he's also a bicycle mechanic, and he has two wives. Both of them really attested to the fact that since um he was part of the contest and listened to the radio program, they really felt like they were more supported by him. He he attended um, the, the prenatal and postnatal consultations with them. And, you know, beyond his implication within the household and taking the time, you know, to, to communicate with their wives and, and supporting them in some of the daily tasks even that they had to take in, he really took it on himself to, to educate others as well. So he's really seen as a community leader. Um, He talks to youth about maternal and and newborn and child health. And he really wants to be sharing his wisdom. And sharing more about the importance of supporting women and children for, you know, for the well-being of, of the household and, and the community as well. So I just think, you know, this is very interesting to see someone who, you know, he was part of this contest and really took it on himself to do more than, than what was supposed to be done. And, and really engaging his community in, in making sure that we are providing women with the support that they, that they really need.
0: Thank you to Caroline Monpetit from Farm Radio International. Next up, we'll be talking agriculture, art and science. And now for something totally different. Dan Ruzegade is a Dutch artist and founder of Studio Roosegaarde, whose projects mix technology and art. His newest installation, Grow, embeds lights into a field to create a beautiful landscape, while also reducing the need for pesticides. He tells our reporter, Kyla Carvalho, how the idea came to be, and how agriculture and art can be connected. It's
8: already, of course, in the word, agriculture. Eh? The, the landscape is part of our culture. We design nature, we design our own culture. Um, and the Netherlands, where I'm from, and where we are right now, Uh, was mostly below sea level, so for more than a thousand years we've been using design and technology and learning and living with nature to create our own home. So I do think there's a lot of relationship actually between art and and the landscape, Um, and it is something we continuously need to challenge and to rethink, and that's what, what GROW is about.
4: The installation uses light to reduce
9: the use of pesticides. Can you explain the mechanism and the science behind it?
8: Yeah, GROW was actually inspired as a a dreamscape, a 20,000 square meter work of art, work of design to to highlight the beauty of these huge fields that feed us and at the same time trying to improve them and and making them more uh, sustainable. Uh, Light recipes is a term used by photobiology people uh, with a very specific wavelength where red and blue light can enhance the growth and ultraviolet light activates the defense mechanism of the plant, and therefore, a pesticide can be reduced. The first thing i mentioned, red and blue, has been used indoor uh, greenhouses for more than 30, 45, 50, 50 years. But the ultraviolet is actually quite pioneering, and we teamed up with Biolumic, they're in New Zealand, and Wageningen University, one of the most famous agriculture universities in the world, uh, to explore that. So it highlights the beauty, and it's a platform... Um, yeah, to use light to, to make agri-culture uh, more sustainable. So, um, yeah, that's, I think it's fascinating.
5: How is Grow different from your other projects?
8: It's not It's not different. It's exactly the same, but a little bit different. No, I think light is, is my language and um, I, I love to work, you know, like a painter has its canvas, but I, I, I see yeah, the landscape or the earth has my canvas. So it was sort of great to be in those fields that literally feed us um, to meet a farmer, you know, to, to to sort of get into this world that as a as a city boy, most of the time I'm sort of disconnected from. And um, so, yeah, it's 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 a landscape of today and it's a landscape of the future, like all the previous projects that we've done. So so it, it, it's close to heart in that way.
9: How do you see GROW moving forward?
8: So the idea is that Grow will tour to 40 countries where Rabobank, uh, who supported this project, is active. Uh, each country has its own local crop, uh, like, like uh, China has rice and Australia has seeds or um, America has weed. And therefore, each country, its crop has its own light recipe and its own yeah, appearance or its own atmosphere. So uh, we're really looking forward to create this series of dreamscapes. And it's... People will actually visit these places that feed us that we're so disconnected from, and I think it will be a very, you know, mesmerizing and, and dreamy experience. So um, we're looking forward to that. Um, the online launch has been really successful. I think we reached more than 650 million people already with the movie and the photos. So that that's, we're really excited about that, and it generates a lot of enthusiasm uh, to do even more.
5: Is there anything you would like to add that you think was important to the conversation?
8: Well, I think it's it's important that if we cannot show a better future, we will also not be able to create it. Eh? So we first have to imagine a better future in order to create it. And I think that's the power of grow, that you sort of show the beauty of a sustainable future. Um, you engage a very wide audience who's not necessarily interested in farming or food. So it's great that I, as an artist and designer, can make these new connections between people and the world around them with the goal that this this UN goals that we all know, will be reached even sooner. So it's very important to drag it into an experience, not just talk about numbers. It's great to be a part of that.
0: Thanks to Dan Ruzagarda and our reporter Kyla Carvalho. You can find out more at Studio Ruzagarda as one word dot net. You can also find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website www.ifad.org and you can find more podcasts at the same address forward slash podcasts. Please go to ifad.org forward slash podcasts to hear our other scintillating shows. In Episode 7, you can hear some great food ideas from Ifad Recipes for Change chefs, Christina Bauman and chef Pierre Thiam. In Episode 13, Ifad's Dina Saleh talks about the issues facing agriculture in the Mediterranean from the Sicily Movie Festival. And in episode 17, we heard from the founder of the Black Environment Network, Judy Ling Wong. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future. Coming up, we talk about an innovative way of IFAD cutting through the red tape. This is Farms Food Future, episode number 19. Many countries face a wide range of technical challenges in terms of modernizing their agricultural sector. IFAD's Reimbursable Technical Assistance, or RTA, program helps countries meet these challenges. IFAD's Special Advisor Marco Marzano di Marines told me more about the concept behind the RTA program.
6: Imagine a country with a wide arable land availability. Water resources, good climate conditions, and large smallholder labor force. But lacking of inspirations, tools, models, skills in how, you know, profitably manage those relevant resources. Or imagine a country lacking all those relevant resources and facing the same challenges in terms of technical and viable livelihood solutions. Well, if a reversible technical assistance programs aim at bridging this gap by providing technical advice of the highest quality, effectively, and the right in time to meet the applicant needs. You know, these reimbursable advisory services are a powerful tool for IFAD member states to solve ad hoc challenges through the provision of on-demand, professional, technical, programmatic, and policy advice facilitated by IFAD.
0: So how much quicker is the RTA process for getting things done?
6: Well, you know, the faster, the better. I mean, uh, we live in a, in a professional world where the yesterday paradigm has become our bread and butter. Uh, compared to ifa traditional investment project, the RTA program is demand-driven and allows ifa member states to request a specific service, whereby IFAT has an added value in performance. It is quicker as the country identify its needs by itself, uh, formally engage with the fund in such a service provision, signs an agreement as the basis to fulfil such services, and uh, if at in turn deliver the service. So an RTA project goes through a less complex, despite being very formal, approval process, and it is solidly based on the mutual
0: trust between the party, the country on one side. And IFAD as a service provide? Can, can you go into a little bit more detail about what sort of services are on offer? IFAD's offer on technical advisory services and areas of
6: interventions coincide with the mandate of the fund, aimed, as you know, aimed at supporting agricultural development, investing in rural people, and promoting rural transformation. The type of service that the fund provides embrace operational advisory, and learning and professional activities. But more specifically, this articulates in technical advisory services, as is the case, for instance, of program design and supervision, policy advice in the agricultural and rural development sector, for example, the development of climate-smart approaches for smallholder, uh, analytical studies and services, impact evaluation and results management, and even capacity building, including the delivery of training. Uh, the areas of intervention concern ad hoc uh, areas of uh, work, in particular the agricultural and farmers' organization, fisheries, livestock, infrastructure, nutrition, climate and environment investments, and of course, emerging issues like the one that are uh, now recently emerging because of COVID 19.
0: Thanks to Marco, and you can follow the innovations on the RTA programme on social media with hashtag RTA or, as a number, innovation. Now coming up, we have the fourth episode of the ACWA miniseries on women leaders. The Afro Descendant Cultural Assets Foundation, or Aqua, works with IFAD. Kayla Carvalho talked to Dorina Hernandez, She's a leader within the Afro-descendant community in Colombia and they talked about Palenque de San Basilio, the first free African town in the Americas, also declared a masterpiece of the oral and intangible heritage of humanity by UNESCO in 2005.
9: We are an Afro-descendant community and like the Afro-Colombian people, we are the result of the historical and cultural process that started with the capturing, kidnapping and transferring of American men and women who were brought as slaves to America, which became one of the most repudiated events of humanity. One event, which was an act of liberation by our African grandparents, who did not accept the condition of being slaves, allowed Palenque de San Basilio to become the first free people in the Americas. Since then, we have always given Palenque a sense of freedom resilience, dignity, and struggle. Our grandparents managed to sign the first peace agreement that was signed in all the Americas in the early 600s. We became independent people, an independent republic from the colonial government. Thanks to this, we were able to consolidate and strengthen our own cultural identity with a language, a history, and a very particular way of
4: life. Could you please tell us the reason it is important to value
9: and maintain the traditions of Afro-descendant peoples? It is essential to value and maintain the tradition of the Afro-descendant peoples because we are part of that history of freedom, resistance, and dignity that we inherited from our African ancestors. We have the mission at every historical moment to give continuity to that legacy, a legacy that vindicated us where we continue to be the protagonists and can continue to defend and be bearers of an ancient culture of African descent reconstructed in each of the territories, in this case, in the Americas and Colombia. So, we belong to that descent. From that descent, from that dignity, we have to make ourselves available to continue to build a more equitable and diverse society, as are the Afro-Colombian peoples in relation to the whole of colombian and latin american society
4: how can these ancestral knowledge and traditions contribute to our small farmers and to the fight against climate change
9: our farmers in palenque have been teaching us that our territories have life they have tears they have souls and that therefore to use agrochemicals on the soil is poisoning the soul of the land and thus poisoning us and poisoning our ecosystem i do believe that based on our ancestral knowledge there is a series of traditional techniques that allow us to sow to feed ourselves with identity to live Weight identity, and to live and contribute to our planet, our ecosystem. We also have other organizational practices for all the work in the fields, the agricultural work, such as the exchange of hands, which means that one farmer helps another in solidarity. Then that group helps the other farmer. So I believe that by combining in a respectful dialogue our ancestral techniques, our economical techniques with other technologies and without damaging our ecosystem, our environment, we can contribute significantly to healthy food and to a society and an ecosystem like the one that existed in our times.
0: Thank you, Kayla, for that report. She was talking to Dorina Hernandez from Colombia for Part 4 of our mini-series Aqua Women Leaders. Next month, for the fifth and final part of the mini-series, we'll talk about climate change and how it affects the lives of Afro-descendant peoples in rural communities across Colombia. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporters, Rosie Gonzalez, Hayla Carvalho, Irshad Khan and Margaret Goring, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platforms and please rate us. I'll be back at the end of May with more news fresh from the farm. We'll be talking all things environmental as we celebrate World Environment Day. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson and the team here at IFAD, thank you for listening.